Um, my name is Stuart, I'm the curate here, and it is wonderful to be able to welcome so many people here this morning, uh, especially Joshua's family and friends, you're very welcome here, and anyone else who is new. So we're just one week away from Easter now, the event that would change everything for Jesus, for his followers, for Israel, for the world in, 300, in 30 AD, and for everyone prior to that time and after that time. So, no, no biggie. Just one week. So, are we ready? As we read the Gospels, as each Gospel rises to its crescendo, as Jesus is tried, sentenced to death, and crucified, in the second half of each Gospel, there's nowhere to hide. Everyone has to make up their mind about Jesus. Is he God or is he an imposter? As so many of Jesus' followers fall away, as Jesus' message got harder and more real, we read in John 6, from this time, many of his followers turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then there are those who just can't stand who Jesus is, what he stands for, and what he is doing and saying. We read this from John 11, straight after the rising of Mary's brother from death, Mary's brother Lazarus. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for all. Uh, for, it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So some followed Jesus, some the decision and direction of the priests and the Pharisees. Within a week, we will see another crowd pleading Pilate for, for Jesus' crucifixion. So each made a decision about Jesus. And this is what we are called to do, to decide about Jesus. Here today in church, there will be a whole spectrum of belief and levels of how committed each one of us is to following him. And whenever you stand today, you are very, very welcome here. Putting ourselves in those Jewish shoes, where they were only a week away from that weekend that would change everything. Let's look now and learn more of the recording of the events some 2,000 years ago that we've just heard read by Andrew. In chapter 19, verse 28 to 40, and that's page 1054 if you want to follow it in the church Bibles. Now, during my talk this morning, I'll refer to several other little uh, other Bible verses. Um, and for those who like to look them up afterwards, there's a little handout afterwards if you want to pick them up. So don't worry about scribbling down lots of verses as I go through. So now, basically, our verses, verses 28 to 40, split into three sections. We have verse 28, where Jesus goes ahead of the disciples. We then have verse 29 to 34, where the disciples collect a donkey donated to Jesus. And then thirdly, verses 35 to the end, 
we have the crowd of disciples worshipping. Each of these will teach us something about the relationship between Jesus and his disciples then and now. So firstly, Jesus goes ahead of the disciples. In just one verse, we see something really telling. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. This is just after Jesus had told a parable that Luke, in verse 11 of our chapter, very helpfully tells us. And I'll read this. He went on to tell tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And now we have in this verse, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So this was Jesus' deliberate plan. The Gospels constantly remind us that Jesus' trajectory of ministry was, t- was categorically heading towards the point at which Jesus would head to Jerusalem for what Jesus knew would be the last time. Just looking in Luke's Gospel alone, we have back in 9 verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely sent a- set out for Jerusalem. Then in Luke 13, 22, then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Going on 10 verses later, verse 33 in, verse 13, in chapter 13, Jesus says, in any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Then explicitly in Luke 18, 31, Jesus tells the disciples, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. And now we have in our first verse today, today, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Does this mean simply that Jesus was a little bit further ahead up the road than the disciples? Or that the disciples had said, you go ahead and we'll catch you up. Well, when I read this in conjunction with those other verses I've just read, of Jesus' determination that now is the time when everything is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled, how much were they really with Jesus, going with him to see this fulfillment of what was to happen? And you know what? I have sympathy for them. Jerusalem was a highly dangerous place for Jesus, their friend who they loved, who they traveled with for three years. Maybe if I was with them, then Jerusalem would be the last place I would want to go. But this is not about them. This is about Jesus. This is about everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Peter understood that when he talked about Jesus, when Jesus asked him whether he was going to leave too. And he said, You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe, and we know that you are the Holy One of God. So this has to happen. Jesus wasn't at that point going to sort of slope off quietly to some quiet part of Galilee to retire, having given some great teaching and now retiring because it was all getting too hot. No, everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. The cross The resurrection is the point. This is what Jesus Christ has come to do. Jesus the Messiah, to take up his cross, to be nailed to it. God's rescue plan, God's wonderful rescue plan, 
with Jesus' full consent to save those disciples then and you and me now. This is Jesus. Jesus changed everything. He, the Son of God, pure, holy, paid the price of dying as a criminal for every one of us. What does this teach us? Well, firstly, to never underplay the enormity of what Jesus did. If we don't keep Jesus' crucifixion as central to our prayers, to our worship, to how we live our life, then we miss the point. Now, the danger the world falls into is, one to, is to want to label Jesus solely as a great teacher or a philosopher. He was so much more than that. The next thing is about us, and it flows from this key point about Jesus taking up his cross. Listen to those words from Jesus from Luke 9, when he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That's Jesus taking up his cross. But then he added, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self? These are not easy words. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. We must be ready for what he needs. Our crosses may not be, God willing, actually going to our death, but it might. But this should be our attitude that we trust Jesus with our very lives. Hear again those words from Peter when Jesus said to him, you do not want to leave me too, do you? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is extreme, but this is what he asks. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross daily and follow me. If Jesus had a marketing department, this would never have passed their approval as a message to the people, would it? It certainly wouldn't have got through any focus group. But however difficult, this clearly is what Jesus is asking. In the years to come, all but one of the disciples would lose his life exactly like this. All of them but John being executed for Jesus' sake. All of them taking up their cross because Jesus held the keys of eternal life. So does Jesus make this difference to your life? Would you like to know Jesus like this, that he makes life real, purposeful, peaceful, even giving our lives to him? I too find this so challenging. Am I someone who is holding on to my life with my own strength? Or am I somebody who trusts in Jesus to such an extent that I trust him with my very life? So let's continue with the passage and learn more. In section two, the disciples collect a donkey donated to Jesus. We see this scene where Jesus tells two disciples to go into the village where they'll find a colt, a donkey tied there. And then they are to untie it uh, just as Jesus said, but they would be challenged by somebody asking what they were doing. And they were to say, 
the Lord needs it. Well, I think what is going on here is Jesus had prearranged this. The Lord needs it is like a code word for this is Jesus wanting this donkey. It's quite likely that the donkey belonged to one of Jesus' followers. And this disciple had been asked by Jesus ahead of time. And this fulfilled a very important prophecy. And this is my next point. As well as how we consider our lives in the first point I made, Jesus asks us now what value we place on our possessions. Here again, this is so challenging. What is our attitude to our possessions? Well, where do we think our possessions come from? This maybe is especially tough here in affluent Surrey. We work hard. Maybe we worked hard at school or university. Well, not all of us, but never mind. Um, But we got through our exams and we found a job and maybe support our family now. But where did this talent come from? Which doors were opened up for us along the way? How do we come to meet and marry our lovely wives and husbands who blessed us with your children who blessed me with my children. Well, God has lavished us with so much, sometimes so much, I think that we stop noticing his generosity. That doesn't mean there won't be tough times or there won't be, or there haven't in the past or there won't be in the future. But God is with us through so much. So when we give to God, we're only giving back to him what is his in the first place. Old Testament teaching taught Jewish people to give back to God 10% of what they had. And many Christians today continue in joy and worship to commit 10% tithe to give back to God. If this is something you're thinking about, there's a little guide um, on the way out on uh, biblical teaching. Or if you want to find it on our website, just search for biblical teaching on giving and you'll see the PDF right away. But this is too more about how we consider our possessions. And this is the second point. Is our attitude to possessions that they are his anyway? So that, that it is with great joy that we're happy to use them for his glory. Our house, our car, our hospitality, our money, our time. Are they his and to his disposal? This leads to the third and final section starting at verse 35. They brought the cult to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the cult, and put Jesus on it. And he went along. People spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So how do these crowds of disciples behave? They worship, shouting, praise Jesus as king. Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah some 500 years earlier. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious. Now this was the whole crowd of disciples. These were men and women who'd been following Jesus. And now the time has come the time when the king, righteous and victorious, would ride into the capital, worshipping him and praising him. But there's a bit of a sting in this tale too. Imagine in those days how a returning king or emperor would have entered their capital city in triumph. 
What vehicle would they have chosen to come in in grandeur? At that time, what was the grandest animal that they could ride in on? Well, emperors riding into Rome would have chosen a huge black stallion or even maybe a giant imposing elephant, both clad in battle armaments. Is that what Jesus does? No. Zechariah goes on and writes 500 years earlier, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is the last animal that a conquering world leader would have chosen. So Jesus, riding on a donkey, is saying something very different. Jesus was coming to be humbled, to serve and not be served, to make the ultimate sacrifice, the agonizing, humbling criminal's death on the cross. Everything about this picture was wrong by worldly standards. And yet this crowd of disciples praised God but again, over the next seven days, so many of them would have fallen away as Jesus was tried, whipped, and crucified. So are these fair-weather um, friends of Jesus? We just can't say. What these friends of Jesus were about to go, go through over the next few days, we can barely imagine. As they thought, they saw everything unraveling that they believed in. And yet, we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus died, yes, but we know that he then rose from the dead and promised his disciples and us, saying, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He promises this at the end of Matthew's gospel. So whatever we've been through or are going through or will go through, our Savior, our friend, our Lord Jesus promises to be with us. So what shall be our, our response? Surely to worship. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, Shout, daughter Jerusalem, or if you allow me, can I make that a little personal to us here? Rejoice greatly, daughter Claygate. Shout, daughter Surrey. Jesus longs for us to recognize these three things in him. Firstly, Jesus makes all the difference to life itself, holding the very keys to life. So why do we hold on so to life so carefully and so preciously, relying on our own strength? when we are held so dearly and cherished by the God of the universe. Secondly, all we have is from him, and letting go of holding on to our possessions is a freedom that he longs for us to enjoy. And thirdly, so with confidence we can turn completely to him and simply worship him, accepting Jesus' promise of life in its fullest, with and in him, where nothing can separate us from his ever-giving love.